Hello, hello. Welcome to Ami Tuckered Out. I am your host, Ami Tucker Ravel. And you know, recently I've been asked why I got into podcasts and why the podcast medium. And there's many, many answers to it. But I think one of them, one of my inspirations to start podcasting was after I heard Serial back in the day. I think the whole world fell in love with podcasts after that. And also, I got slightly obsessed with true crime stories, true crime podcast, true crime documentaries. I mean, you name it, it's kind of a problem. So I'm really excited to talk to my guest today, Gia Wertz, who is a South Asian true crime documentary filmmaker and director. Her debut film, Conviction, was recently released on Amazon Prime and was also selected at 11 film festivals around the world winning three awards. The documentary sheds light on the shortcomings of the criminal justice system through Jeffrey Deskovic's wrongful conviction of a rape and murder in New York. In addition, Gia is a featured writer for Forbes and the founder and fashion designer of Studio 15. Please enjoy my interview with Gia Wertz. Hey, Gia, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. This is awesome. So yeah, so I was reading up all about you. I love your website. And so you are actually from Calgary, Alberta, right? And you currently live in New York City. Growing up, was it a like typical Indian household? Yeah, pretty typical. It's funny because the older I get, I kind of sometimes look back. I'm like, hey, maybe it wasn't as typical as I thought it was when I was actually in it. Um, because my parents are pretty progressive and we didn't have, we definitely had like the don't wear tank tops, don't show your skin. You know, we had to live kind of that double life of like, can't tell my parents where I'm going at night with my, you know, all my Caucasian friends and stuff like that for sure. But we also didn't have the like, I often hear from other friends like the do it this way or we'll disown you and stuff like that. They were very, they were very, uh, you know, on our side all the time kind of thing. We never felt that like, oh God, if we go totally you know, break the rules that will be in, you know, deep crap. We never had yeah. that hanging yeah. over us. <laughs> That's good. So you grew up in Canada and then where'd you go to school? Did you go to school there as well? Yeah, I went to school in Calgary my whole life. And then for college, I moved to Toronto and I was in Toronto until I got married and moved to the States. Got it. So then growing up, like, did you, and then in college, did you got, did you have any idea of what you wanted to do or were you kind of in that similar this story where, you know, they, they wanted to be a doctor or a lawyer or engineer, you know, you know how it goes. We were a hundred percent in the doctor, engineer, lawyer, like, like, and hilarious me, I have two brothers, me or my two brothers. None of us went that route at all. And yes, our parents were quite disappointed in the beginning. I went into fashion. Um, my brother uh, owns, managed a nightclub, and my other brother started a nonprofit organization. Uh, so none of us quite did anything close to that. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. And then they were disappointed at first. I mean, they're happy now because we've all had successful careers. But in the beginning, yeah, it was a little bit rough to try and say, I want to work with clothes instead of being a doctor. So out, of the, so out of the three siblings, who did they end up liking the most? <laughs> <laughs> well, work-wise, definitely my youngest brother who runs a nonprofit organization yeah. to help other people that's so aligned with the brown world. <laughs> yes, yes, of course. So then you you worked in fashion for a while. Yeah, for 20 years. Oh, wow. What were you doing? 
I was on the business operations side of okay. um, the fashion industry for a bunch of brands. Like I did that for all those shoes for their corporate office for some time and then a few other um, big brands. Okay. And then you are, so, but then you are the founder and fashion designer of Studio 15. Is that still going on? Are you still yeah. working? Okay. Yeah. I, so I own that company. I started that. So towards the end of my career in the fashion industry, when I decided I didn't want to do that anymore, I thought, okay. well, you know, I work way too hard to be, I worked like 60, 70 hours a week. I traveled all the time. It was just a crazy amount of work and sometimes right. like 2 a.m. and 3 a.m. And I thought, you know, I should do this for myself. Like, why am I making all this money for other other companies? And so I started my own brand, uh, which nice. is Studio 15. And then five years into doing that, I just had this desire to do something else. I wanted to do something that helped people. I kind of got tired of the fashion industry. I mean, I still love it as a hobby and I still have like passion about clothes and stuff, but I did not want to spend 60 hours a week just focused on designing clothes and selling clothes. It just wasn't fulfilling anymore. Right. Was it as glamorous as people assume it is? You know, it was, it was glamorous. Yes, but after when this is the funny thing in my 20s I was like oh I hit the jackpot like I'm working in fashion and this is I would do this for free and you're paying me good money to do it like I thought I had just you know everything was totally. great and then late 30s I was like what am I doing here some of these personalities are horrific like I, these are not people I want to surround myself with <laughs> not everybody but a lot of people you know and totally. that's why I started to just not like it I was like it's super bureaucratic it's pointless there's lots of things I didn't like about it and um, and I just didn't, I also have never believed in spending a ton of money on, on clothes. It just feels very wasteful to me. So that also started to bother me in the industry when, you know, one article of clothing would be $10,000. I was like, what are you talking about? This is ridiculous. Yeah. Like you can save like a million children with that. Let's exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, it's funny. It happens with age. I, I'm, the same happened, same thing happened with, I mean, I went to law school cause you know, I had to check check the box. My brother was a doctor. So I had to become something. Oh, um, you. And so, and I went to law school cause I really just wanted to leave to Texas. So I moved to Chicago, but um, I had tried so hard to like work in fashion and I tried to work in radio, although I'm doing a podcast now, but whatever. So, but I had always wanted to do these things where as I got older, I was like, huh, it feels a little bit, I thought I'm saying it's empty. It just wasn't fulfilling anymore. And I was like, I hate to admit this, but I think I'm getting older and just need something a little bit more, you know, something that I feel good about. And, and, and more and as the more and more I'm doing stuff, the more I'm like, I need to start giving back a lot more. Yeah, I felt the exact same way. Right. That's exactly why I made the, the freaking switch. adulting, man. Just ruins <laughs> everything. So then you were saying after Toronto, you moved to New York. You got married and then moved to New York. I got married and I moved to Houston because my husband's from Texas. And then from Houston. <laughs> Sorry, I'm from Houston. I'm just trying I to give it props because right no one else the Galleria. <laughs> oh, you did? Yeah. I grew up there. I, I lived in uh, right near Galveston. Oh, no way. I went to Galveston yeah. quite a few times. Yeah. And you absolutely loved Houston, I assume. You know, I did love Houston. Yay! And my husband made fun of me because he didn't love Houston so much. He loves Texas, but he wasn't a huge fan of Houston. And he made so much fun of me because I got there and coming from Canada, where it's like cold six months of the year, I was like, the weather's amazing. There's palm trees. Like, I felt like this was just the best place. And, and he made fun of me for a long time. He's like, because the I think the first weekend I was there early on, I made him pull over while we were driving because I was like, there's palm trees. I want to take a photo. And it was at a strip mall. And he was like, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what we have to offer. But something. <laughs> no. uh, were you guys there for his job? 
Yeah, he already he lived and worked there when I met him. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Got so. it. Got it. I'm so excited you like I said I knew I liked you. <laughs> and then you had mentioned to me that you married someone that's not Indian, which is, you know, it's becoming more common, but we're almost, we're the same age. It wasn't as common back then. Uh-huh. So how were, how did the family react to that? You know, I'm one of the oldest of my cousins and I have a huge family. Like, I don't even know how many cousins, 30 plus. Cause my mom has, there's nine siblings, including her and my dad okay. has six, including him. So it was a really huge family. And I was the I was one of the oldest, like the third oldest, and I was the first one to get married. And so there was a lot of pressure. They were like, listen, not just my parents, but then my aunts and uncles all had like this meeting and they were like, listen, like you're setting the tone for our kids and what they'll do and this and that. And I was like, how are you putting this on me? (laughs) Everybody calm down. Yeah, Yeah, everybody calm down and leave the dining room. (laughs) Yeah, or just my life. Thanks. Yeah. So it was interesting. I mean, they had that one big conversation and then everybody, that's the good, great thing about the family is they'll definitely voice their opinion, but then everybody, once it was happening, everybody was on board and um, everything was great. Yeah. And we had like two big weddings. We had one with like the white dress and we had one of the Indian, you know, whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. And then you, you guys have a son. We do. He's three. I, I must see pictures. Blended babies are the best. Seriously. Oh, yeah. I'll send you some. <laughs> yes. I have a seven-year-old who's ready to babysit. So just oh, nice. throwing, throwing it out there. She's very mature. Well, we've had uh, zero date nights in three, four years. So I'm going to yeah. take you up on that for sure. <laughs> I know. I know. I'm like, this is getting a little bit. I'm like, I've been with my kids a lot. <laughs> like, I like them. But yeah, it's been yeah. it's been quite a bit of bonding with them for sure. And you just have one as well? I have I have two. I have a seven and a four-year-old. Oh, see, that's nice because they'll two girls. each other sometimes. Oh my God. They so entertain. I mean, also like after us telling them to leave us alone like 50 times a day, I think they're like, okay, we give up. Like our parents are just, yeah. So, you know, yeah. I mean, they, they totally play together. It's awesome. And yeah, they're both girls. So like they sleep together, bathe together. Like they just, yeah. That's awesome. Get, get on it. Get on it, Gia. Number two. <laughs> you can do it. <laughs> I keep trying to convince my husband that having two will free up our time. And he's like, you're crazy. There's no way that's going to happen. <laughs> it will. It'll just take like four years. A couple years. Yeah. 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 But just pretend I didn't say that. Just do it. You'll like it. <laughs> so then when did you decide to go to the New York Film Academy? So that was, um, it was just two years ago, a year and a half ago okay. um, that I did that. Yep. And what, what made you, what was the switch? Like what made you decide, okay, this is what I want to do. So when I was 19 or 20 years old, I read this book and to this day, it's still my favorite book. It's Reuben Carter's uh, book, the 16th round. Have you read it? I haven't read it, but I I know it. Yeah. It's the one that that Denzel movie, the hurricane was based on. So most people know it. And I read it. And when I first read that book, and it's still my favorite book till this day, just, it was about a guy who was wrongfully convicted of a murder and just everything he went through. And he wrote the book when he had kind of exhausted all of his appeals and he had really nowhere to go. And he wrote the book or nowhere to turn, I should say. And he wrote the book as a last appeal to the public. Like, can anyone help me kind of thing? And it just, I don't know, it bothered me so much, you know, back then. And his words just stuck in my mind pretty much my whole life because it was just so heartbreaking. And then fast forward to 20, I think 14 serial, the podcast came out. Oh my God. (laughs) 
<laughs> so good. Oh my God. That changed my life. I feel it like changed okay, sorry. My life. It changed so many people's lives. It's so yes. crazy. I talked to so many people and they're like, I went to law school because of a non-story, or I, you know. And that's why so- I started this. I was like, I want to be serial. I'm not quite there, but I'm like, this this just this that medium and the way they did it just blew my shit away. I'm like, this well, is essentially amazing. that's why I went into filmmaking. So I w- listened to serial. And the hilarious side note is my husband is like a serial, uh, sorry, a podcast fiend. He loves podcasts. He listens to them in his sleep. He listens to them all day long and the commute and just all the time. And Ooh, I, I got I got to I gotta exchange notes with him. I want to see what he's listening to. Oh, you should. He has a laundry list anytime somebody asks um, and he has good taste. Um, but for sure, I'll, I'll, I'll hook you guys up. But he uh, he came home one day from work and was like, you got to listen to this podcast. And I was like, no, nah, I don't want to. I'm not a big podcast person. I'm super visual. So like my right. mind starts to wander and he was like no you don't understand like it's a true crime story which I was always into and he's like and I was like nah and he's like it's about a Pakistani family and I was like what a true crime story about a Pakistani family I've never heard of such a thing and so I was like okay let's listen to one episode and I got hooked like everyone I, he, I was play the next play the next and so we listened to four episodes over dinner which was of course way more than I said I would listen and I was like play the next one he's like there's no more like they come out every Thursday and I was like no this can't be happening and so I was hooked anyway serial ended and I was very disturbed and I was like this guy's innocent and he's in jail because pretty much because he's brown, I felt like, and was railroaded. Uh, funny enough, Adnan reminds me a lot of my brothers. And so all I could think of was my brothers. And I was like, we've had the same upbringing. And God, thank God my brothers didn't, you know, meet with some prosecutors or detectives that were racist like this, because I feel like that story could have been any one of our Anyone. stories. Mm-hmm. And so it really bothered me. So I reached out to Adnan's family. And at first, I never heard back from anyone. And I thought, well, you know, I wanted to help, but I didn't know what to do. And so then I thought, you know, I don't really need to talk to the family to help. So I started a, I organized a fundraiser in New York, a, just a local, local bands. And we sold tickets and I made the, actually, I was the one who originally made the free Adnan shirts with Studio 15. Oh my God. And yeah, yeah. And then I sold those shirts at the fundraiser and we ended up getting in touch with the family in the whole process. And now they're actually really close friends of mine. They're just the most amazing humans. Long story short, we raised a few thousand dollars in one night. We donated it. And the family was so just thankful and so wonderful. And then I became friends with them. And so fast forward a few years later, I was at a non's post-conviction hearing when he got his conviction overturned a couple years ago. And while I was there, there was a camera crew filming the um, just afterwards. Like we went to dinner and stuff and they were just around. And the family ended up telling us, hey, don't say anything. But, you know, you guys might be on camera or what have you because they're shooting an HBO doc called right. you know, The Case Against a Non-Side. Mm-hmm. And me, with my naive self, I had 20 years of experience in photography. You know, I love cameras and all that. And I was sitting there and I was watching them. And I think it was like two people or maybe three. It was a very few people. And in my, you know, naive mind, I was like, three people are filming an HBO doc? Like, what? I can do this. And and so I came home and I promptly enrolled in at New York Film Academy. That's <laughs> amazing. I'm going to make films. I love that. I love yeah. that. But, you know... That, of course, in hindsight, there's hundreds of hundreds of people who worked on that documentary. It was not the cameraman and the one producer that was there. I would um, so think the same thing. I'm like, this is I can do this totally. Like what? Well, you did yeah. it. You started a podcast. You you yeah. did the same thing. Yeah. I mean, you know, I messed up a hundred times, but yes, totally. Oh, I messed up a hundred times too, for sure. Yeah. 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 This is fascinating. I cannot believe you went from just listening to serial to getting involved and getting to know his family. That's crazy. 
You know, it was such like, I've actually never talked to anyone about this except for my mom. It was such a crazy experience for me because I got there. I mean, I met the family and they were just the warmest, nicest people. And so that was one, you know, and then two, when I got to the post-conviction hearing, it was in Baltimore. I rented a hotel downtown by the courthouse. I was by myself. I took a train out there from New York. I'm by myself. I get there at nighttime. Baltimore's not the safest place to be. I'm a little bit scared. I'm there. And then I, in the morning, I, and the funniest thing is I checked into the hotel and the woman working behind the counter was all like, what are you doing here? Are you staying here alone? Where are you going to walk to? She's like, don't go left when you leave the hotel. And I was like, what? <laughs> don't breathe at all when you go outside. Yeah. And so I got more scared. So I was like, what do you mean? Like, don't go left. <laughs> And that's what she said. She's like, do not walk left. If you want to go anywhere tonight, go right. And I was like, okay. And so in the morning, I walk to the courthouse and I get there and I sit down and, you know, I'm in the courtroom and the family is just super nice. I knew a couple of them at that point, not everybody. And I met everybody else. And it was the first day that I had met some of them. And they were just so nice. They were like, where are you staying? What do you mean? They didn't know I was coming. So many of them didn't know I was coming. I was like, oh, I'm staying at this hotel down the street. The court case like for the day wrapped up and they were like no get in my car we're getting your luggage you're not staying here you're staying at our house and drove me to their house and had me stay with them I mean like brown people do right right yeah I had just met them that day they weren't expecting a visitor a stranger in their home and stuff I I mean at this point I think they also I mean the the support you're showing and I mean it's it's touching and obviously like you're Pakistani I think they probably just felt like close to you you know yeah, I'm sure. It was just so nice, though. It was yeah, so totally. Nice. So that was totally. the beginning of kind of, you know, getting to know them. And I stayed with them and, you know, all that did, stuff. Did you meet, was it Rabia? Yeah, Rabia's a good friend of mine. Yes. Oh, this is so cool. I want to yeah. interview both you guys together. This is amazing. Yes. <laughs> I'll ask yeah. her. She's so busy, but I'll definitely ask oh, her. Oh, I'm sure. Oh, God. Even like 10 minutes, I would love to meet her and just pick her brain. Oh, that's fascinating. When I, when I, after listening to Cyril, I was like, Robbie is a real life hero. I was like, this is like literally a angel on earth, this person. She, I, I was so happy to meet her. She's just, just so out of awesome. curiosity. I mean, I obviously saw everything up until I don't, I haven't heard of anything else out is what's going on with the case. Do you know? You know, they haven't said much because they're okay. working on a whole, because his conviction had got overturned and then the state appealed it and got it reversed. Right. And I remember since that. that happened, they haven't shared much because they're working with a larger legal team and they're working on new angles and a new appeal. But they right. haven't told anyone what that is. So, yeah. But they said soon. They said, actually, I think soon this year they're going to reveal what's going on because they're going to file an appeal. This is amazing. Oh, my God. I'm going to pee in my pants. This is- <laughs> I did not expect you to go there at all. You're like, oh, I love cereal. I'm like, me too. And you're like, yeah, I'm best friends with the family. I'm like, what? <laughs> what just happened? <laughs> That's amazing. Good for you. So so cereal, um, the book, these things affected you, right? And so you decided this is a story. These stories are something you wanted to tell. Yes, exactly. Okay. All right. So that was two years ago. You did the Academy. So your first... Your debut film is Conviction, mm-hmm. which focuses on Jeffrey Deskovic, Deskovic, who yeah. was wrongfully imprisoned for 16 years. I saw it today. I thought it was fantastic. So I guess my first question is, why did you decide to do a short? Mm-hmm. So kind of like, how did you decide what angles to take? You know, the funny thing about that is I didn't 
really decide that. It kind of is how it went. Okay. <laughs> I, okay. Uh, the reason it went that way is because when I enrolled at New York Film Academy, I went in knowing exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to make films about people who were wrongfully convicted so I could shed light on their cases. And my ultimate goal is to tell the story of somebody who's currently incarcerated so I can help them. That is what I want to do. But when I went into school, I said, you know, any of the school assignments at New York Film Academy that we get for myself, I was going to make them around this topic because I wanted to start. Like I did not want to, you know, I was already 40. I didn't want to make films. Girl, whatever. We get younger and younger looking. Don't worry about it. I, I know, right? Don't worry about it. <laughs> I, that's why when, it, when you told me you, you kind of restarted career at 40, I was like, we have to talk doing the yeah. same thing. It's amazing. Good for you. I think it's great. Yeah. So I went in with like a clear mission. I was like, right. I'm gonna, I don't care what the assignment, I, I actually did not do so well on some of the assignments because I was trying to fit a square into a circle. Cause I, I took the assignment, but then somehow applied it to like a wrongful conviction type thing. So I could get footage that I needed. Cause I knew what right. my plan was when I finished school. So, um, so anyways, so I went in and Jeff, who my film is about, I met him because when I planned the fundraiser for Adnan a few years back, right. I was looking for a speaker, somebody to speak at my event. And my girlfriend, who I was planning the event with, said, I know somebody. I met him at a party, and he has a very similar story to Adnan. He was wrongfully convicted at 16. He spent a lot of years in prison. Right. He was also a classmate who was murdered. And I said, absolutely, I want to meet him. So she introduced me to Jeff, and Jeff was a speaker at my fundraiser. That's how I first met him. And so when I went to school, he was the only person that I personally knew that had been wrongfully convicted that I could reach out to. So I asked him right. if I could interview him. And so my interview with Jeff started off as a school project. It was my school assignment. My final film at New York Film Academy, I made a really short uh, film about Jeff. It was like seven, eight minutes long. When I finished that film, one of the professors said, you know, this is really good. You should submit it to film festivals. And up until that point, I had no, I didn't even know what a film festival really was. I'd never been to yeah. one. I'd never, definitely didn't know how to submit to one. And he kind of showed me, and he had a film in festivals that had been really successful. Um, he's also Indian, by the way, if you ever want to talk to him now that I think about it. But <laughs> yeah, he's the one who told me. And I was like, you know, I'll give it a try. And I submitted it. And it got into like four festivals within 30 days. And then it got into, you know, so far it's gotten into 11 so far. It started off as a school assignment, which is why it was focused solely on Jeff. And then when I was in school, the really lucky thing is at that um, campus, a lot of the professors are Emmy nominated filmmakers like... Um, the oh, what's his name Bob who did Free Solo um, Claudia who did Ruth Bader Ginsburg's doc like those they were the professors there so, um, so they kind of know their shit like yeah they know what they're doing yeah exactly <laughs> and they were some of the professors there and so the really lucky thing is when you're editing your film and you have people of that caliber looking at it they really gave me a lot of advice. And they said, when you're making a short, you really got to focus on one aspect of the story because it's just too short a time period to touch on such a, uh, you know, dynamic story of Jeff's life. And so- Well, I not just the story, right? It's like the prison system and the parole, like all of that. It's, there's so much to it, right? It's exactly. insane. And so like, how do you narrow that down? Yes, and how do you not make it just- touching a little bit on these huge topics that would not right. be a good film, right? So mine was focused on answering just one question. How, like, how did Jeff reintegrate into society once he got out? That was kind of the question that I was answering in that film. Um, and so I just focused on that because that's what the professor said to do. They said, pick one question that you want to answer for the audience and just focus on that and kind of 
put the rest aside. But uh, the good news is I'm working on the feature length doc on Jeff's story and it's almost finished. So there'll be a whole hour and a half long version that really touches on like why the DNA evidence wasn't tested, why Janine Puro denied the DNA testing, why did he give a false confession, and why do human beings confess to horrific things they didn't do, like the psychology behind it, and and the justice system, and what it's like in prison, and uh, lots of other aspects of it. So that'll be... God, there's so much. I mean, there's so many questions. We can talk forever. Yeah, false confessions. Jeffrey was talking uh, about just the treatment in prison, right? Like he was talking about, yeah, they're prisoners, so no one cares, and they're so badly treated, and it's just it's hard to get out of that funk, you know. Once you get out, right? Yeah. Um, but it was amazing. Like he got out, went to law school, graduated law school at forty five. Yeah. He's a foundation. He freed seven wrongfully convicted people, and then he all. I mean, I'm in Connecticut. He also helped abolish death penalty in the state. Yes. In Connecticut. I mean, what that's amazing. I know. I know. He he's an amazing human. It's really yeah. remarkable. It, which is why I loved making the film. Like it's just how many people have that that much spirit and you know right. appearance. How was he while you were making the film? Was he emotional about it or had it been long enough where he was able to kind of talk through it? You know, there were two times he was emotional. But other than that, he was able to talk about it really easily. The funny thing about Jeff is, and I say this to him too, I asked him this actually as one of the questions in my interviews, is how do you talk about it so nonchalantly? Like how how is this not bothering you? And because he talks about like one time he was almost killed in prison when he was yeah. like, he attacked. And he talks about all kinds of things that normally people wouldn't be able to talk about, but he talks about them like as if you asked him what he ate for lunch. It's really, it's almost bizarre, you know? Right, right. Yeah, and uh, I asked him that, and he said that he almost feels like he's talking about somebody else. He compartmentalizes it as like a coping mechanism. Which and, makes sense. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah, because I mean, he was talking about solitary confinement and just kind of like, the being used to the daily violence in prisons, you know, it just made me like when he said, no one cares, like that just, it just makes you sad. Like no one cares about these people, yeah. you know, like they're prisoners. So they kind of like people assume they just deserve it. Yeah. You know, and he was saying how that made him sick. And so, yeah, anyways, it was, it was powerful as you know, I know it's 22 minutes, but like you get a lot out of it. The feature would be great because it is interesting to learn about false confessions. I know there's a lot of documentaries out there that talk about it. What was the one with um, the murder? Um, oh, making a murder. Making a murder. Right. Right. Yes, and that Avery. was that was Stephen Avery. The and that that was focused a lot on false confessions, right? Yes. Yes. I mean, that I, I'm sure you've seen all of them. <laughs> I've seen a ton, but making a murder is definitely up there. So good. So, so, so good. And just all these top, these questions come out about false confessions and how the police treat, you know, suspect. I mean, just all of it. There's just so much yeah. to it. Yeah, that's my goal for the next one after I finish. Because Jeff's, I mean, I always wanted to do the feature length. And then I have so much footage, too. I definitely wanted to f finish that. Um, and Jeff is also very excited about it. But yeah, the one after that, I'm definitely going to focus on somebody who's currently incarcerated. So you already know the person. I do, but I'm researching it right now. And I really got to make sure like some of the things that I think are going on are really going on to make sure that there is like that plot point in the story and whatnot. And because accuracy is so important in documentaries, right. of course. So I'm researching it right now and uh, writing it right now. But I'm, you know, not 100% sure that's the one that's gonna, you know, start getting filmed. But I think so. So like, yeah, how do you know if it's right or wrong? 
Yeah, talking to people mainly. And I really rely on um, other people who are experts in this, like Jeff, for example, you know, he works with people who have been wrongfully convicted. And, and I've uh, interviewed many people from the Innocence Project and the whole filmmaking process. And in talking to them, too, there are a few markers, you know, that really stand out as to indicate someone's innocence. One, one big one is that none of the information that they either shared in police interviews or whatever, was uh, unique, like information that only the killer or whoever would have known. It's stuff the police already knew or had been printed in newspapers or they'd been fed from the detectives in interviews. Usually if that's all the details they have, that's a big indicator that they didn't know anything other than that. And then secondly, once people do go to prison, once they come up for parole, when they're up, um, you know, talking to the parole board, the parole board always, as you probably know, uh, wants you to show remorse. And a lot of people after spending 10, 20 years in prison refuse to say, you know, I have remorse because they're still, they're saying, I didn't do this. I can't have remorse because I'm innocent. And that always works against them when it comes to granting parole because they won't give you parole if you don't show remorse. And so just the fact that they could have an opportunity to get out after 20 years of their life has been taken away, but they still stand before the parole board and say, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to assert my stand my ground, stand my ground. That shows innocence because you could just say, okay, I feel bad and I did it. And then let me go home because I want to go home, you know, because I shouldn't have been here in the first place. You are the director, the producer, and the editor. Yes. How did you do all that? Like, how did you play all the roles? That's crazy. Well, I had to because it was such a small team and it was such a small budget, right? Yeah. And so it was really just four of us were the main crew that made the film together. And uh, three of those people were people that I met at, at New York Film Academy. You know, there were other students that happened to be in school when I was in school. And uh, once school ended, I continued to film and continued to make make the doc. So I had hired people here and there for smaller roles. Um, but I, I had to, you know. And frankly, when I was making it, I didn't even know what a producer does. and I ended up producing it because I was the one doing all the research. I was the one making all the phone calls and scheduling the interviews and, you know, scheduling whatever locations we need to shoot in. I and think so- that's the producer. I think exactly that's what you, said. <laughs> what you just said. That's what the producer does. I, so- I hear there's actually, from my friends in film and, and people that act, I hear there is really no set title for a producer. Producer can do a lot of different things. Yeah. And I've learned that there's like, I don't even know, 40 different kinds of producers. Yeah. 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 It's just kind of like the producer does everything that's left over, basically. And, but also everything that's required before you even start, like all the yeah. research. Yeah, basically. Yeah, you pretty much everything. So uh-huh. you did all three, which is that's amazing. So uh, out of curiosity, how do you raise money for this kind of film? So, you know, I haven't raised money for the film. So I self-funded this one and I'm debating raising for the next one. And I'm really on the fence about doing that or not. People would totally support this. Yeah, they would. But then I just, this is just my personality type thing. Then you just have more people in there saying they want this or they want that or they don't want this. And I really have a clear cut idea of exactly what I want it to be. And I just don't want people in there muddying it up. (laughs) Right. I know. I totally get that. Go fund me, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I've looked into that. And that's actually very interesting because there are ways to do it that way. And that is the route that I'm looking at. Um, well, we're going to throw it out there in the podcast on, on my notes. Um, so then this was your first, this is your debut film. So how was, how was the filmmaking process? Like, did it, was it way harder than you thought it would be? 
Um, you know, it wasn't that hard. I, I loved every aspect of it. Like photography was my first love. And I was telling my husband this after I came home from my very first day of shooting. I said, I haven't felt like that inside, like, oh, this is just exactly what I want to be doing till the first time I picked up a camera in college, I felt that way. And then I felt that way the first time I went to interview Jeff and did my first interview for this documentary. It's, I loved every aspect of it. It's just minus the editing. That's the audio editing is the only thing that's like a chore. But other than that, I quite loved it. But so <laughs> you, you are where you are supposed to be then? Yeah, I mean, I love it. I just love it. Okay, so true crime, just generally, like, I I was about to tell you, like, when you're, when you're telling me your husband listens to a lot of podcasts, like, I actually have to stop myself from listening to true crime podcasts all day long, because I'm like, at night, I'm like, wide awake, I'm like, uh, like, obsessed. It's an obsession. And I feel like a lot of my girlfriends, just like last night, me and my sister-in-law started watching Night Stalker. And I'm like, what is wrong with us? Like, can we watch something like not about this stuff? So like, what do you think is the obsession with true crime? And like, why, especially women, I feel like watch a lot of true crime. Oh my God, that's hilarious. Did you see that I just did an episode uh, segment on this on the list on the TV show last week it aired? Oh, no, I'm going to send it to you. I answered this exact same question that you're asking me right now. I'm going to send you that after we hang up. But it's so funny because I did some research on this because I'm like you. I'm obsessed with true crime. It scares the absolute shit out of me. I am so terrified at night. I can't sleep. Podcasts, especially for some reason, because they're just in your ear and the eerie music and everything for some reason is worse than watching a movie for me. I don't know why. Um, But I'm, I'm obsessed with true crime as well and also cannot watch it and my husband makes so much fun of me because anytime I want to relax I'm like a true crime documentary and he's like this is so not relaxing I know what is like seriously yeah. can I just watch like yes you know just you know the wedding singer or something and calm down like I don't exactly. know what's wrong with me yeah anyway. it's really funny because the New York Times did a piece on this which is what originally got me researching this because I was like oh my god this makes so much sense they had an article and they were talking about how women Um, true crime like podcasts and books and even some shows have the audience is like 75 to 85 percent women which is a really insane number and part of the reason for that is because women are usually the victims of these crimes and we watch them often to like learn how did these women escape how did they get away from their attacker or um, what can we do in the future to prevent being in this situation it's almost like a a learning thing education I, I was I mean I was in my back of my in the back of my mind that was my answer I was like I think it's because we're usually the victim and this just kind of to understand what's out there how it happens what to avoid yes. like what kind of typically sad to say men to look for in general uh, that kind of stuff right like it, it is that's what that's what I feel like I do I'm like okay like my kids never leaving my house <laughs> Oh, I feel the same way. And it's so funny. I don't know if you feel this way, but I'm only five one, you know, I've always been really small and just walking around outside, like at night and whatever, I'm always hyper aware of my surroundings. Who is this person? Who's that person? Are they looking at me? And it's unhealthy. It's really weird. But that's part of the reason I think that also, you know, answers why we watch true crime, because we're just so hyper aware that this is a possibility that something could happen. And we're physically smaller. So if something did happen, we would be at a disadvantage. So we kind of got to be, yeah. You know, or maybe we, we watch too much true crime and that's why we're hyper aware. 
I yeah, don't know. it could be. It could be. <laughs> yeah, but it is. It's totally. I mean, it's also like a lot. A lot of these podcasts, true crime podcasts, are so well done. Yes, it, it, it is. In general, whatever messed up reason, people are intrigued with murder and and all this negative stuff. I don't know, maybe because they think it's not going to happen to them or something. I'm not sure. There's, there has to be some kind of lots yeah. of psychological reasons for sure. For sure. For sure. <laughs> in, in the documentary I'm working on um, the feature for Jeff's story, it's really going to be about false confessions because that okay. was a major thing in his case. Um, DNA evidence and testing and just the fact like the process in the legal system in the US of how it has to get approved and right. like DNA should just be, if it's available, it should just be tested. It just doesn't make any sense. Um, so those are going to be two of the big topics that we we touch on other than obviously everything that, that Jeff went through. Awesome. And then yeah. when does that come out? So I don't have a date yet because we're still looking for, you know, distribution, who to distribute it with. Um, but I'm hoping mid-year this year is my goal. Hey, very exciting. Yeah. And then are there any other projects that you can talk, you want to talk about or you're currently working on besides? That's it. Because the third one I'm just researching. So okay. I don't want to, uh, yeah, yep. preemptively share that in case it doesn't even happen. It's one that you'll be excited about, I'm sure. <laughs> oh my God. We're going well, we're to we're gonna talk after this. We're going to talk a lot more. Um, <laughs> Okay. And so really quickly, I do like a fast round just to yeah. like get to know you a little bit. Um, just a fun little, few little questions. Okay. So uh, first thing that comes to your mind, what is your biggest pet peeve? Uh, when things are messy. What is your all-time favorite documentary? Oh man, that's a tough one. I would have to say two, Making a Murderer okay. and The Jinx. Oh my God, The Jinx is so good. I forgot oh, about yeah. that one. Oh, <laughs> We have so much to talk about. We should do the whole podcast on podcast uh, on true crime documentaries. Well, we can talk um, again anytime you yes, want. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, whenever we you come over after this pandemic thing, we'll just binge watch everything. Yeah, that's perfect. Um, my husband will be off the hook for once. Who I know? Who would you? I know my husband is like, I can't, I can't do this. Who would you love to work with next? Oprah. <laughs> I think out of my thirty-eight guests, you're like number thirty to say that. So. We're gonna I mean, keep she's the most amazing there. human. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I know. Like, if you work with her, like, set for life, right? What is your current guilty pleasure on Netflix slash Prime? Yeah, on anything. But it has to be guilty pleasure. Like, I'm talking like you know yeah. Indian matchmaking. Well, pleasure. I was gonna say Indian matchmaking. Oh, so my last one. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. Yeah, it's so bad and so good. I mean, there's so many that are out there now. I think I yeah. watched Bollywood Wives. You know, I couldn't get through more than three minutes of that one. I just couldn't do it. Yeah, I'm it a little was, bit like embarrassed to be myself. Watch, I was like, I watched the whole thing. I'm like, is something wrong with me? But I also like had an obsession with Neelam, who was that 90s oh, okay. star, 80s. And I just loved her growing up. So okay, I think I just right. liked watching her. But it also made me kind of depressed because I was like, what is happening here? But I yes. had to watch the whole thing. If there was a show like this about like Reka or somebody, I would totally yeah. have watched it. Oh. I didn't know any of these women. And yeah. there was just not enough of a storyline. I couldn't deal with that show at all. I was upset with Neelam and then the other wife, one of the wives, her, her husband I was obsessed with in the 90s. So I kind of made myself feel better about that. But I definitely ended that binge questioning my life a little bit. I was like, yeah, well. <laughs> I was excited to watch it because it was a Brown show and it'd be funny, I thought. And I literally, I mean, I swear, I think maybe my husband and I made it to maybe six minutes. Maybe. I don't even know. And we couldn't do it. I'm going to make you watch it with me. And then there's like the billionaire bat. I don't know, some billionaire show about Indian billionaires or something. I don't know. 
There's so many. So, but you so know what stuff. I will tell you, which is I loved the first season of is four more shots, please. Oh my Did god. Well, so Lisa Ray and I are friends. Oh, so I, no way. Yeah, so I interviewed her. She was on the podcast um, a couple of months ago. I went to UT, then I worked at Enron, which didn't work out. And in between Enron and law school, I had two years where one year I worked on film sets because I actually thought I wanted to do film school as well. And I worked on a film set with Cal Penn and Lisa Ray on one of like their first, first movies. Uh-huh. And so I was like, Cal Penn's PA or uh, I was giving him coffee and I have no idea, but Lisa was on there as well. So we became friends and then I reached out to her recently because I knew four more shots was coming out and, and she had yeah. her, her book uh, close to the most. Anyway, so yeah, so I just got in touch with her and I, I binge watched both seasons. So yeah, good. it was so good. I'm just like happy people. They're making that kind of stuff in India now. Uh, me too. That's exactly why I mean, I loved it. But I that was one of the big reasons I loved it even more because I was like, right. thank God it exists in the world finally. Right. I mean, it, it has been, but I think now they ha- they have the platforms to like make it happen. You know. Yeah. South Asians are blowing up. This was so awesome. Yeah, I know. I feel like. Um, okay, so now I kind of feel like making a true crime podcast. If anyone out there knows how to do that, can you please call me and help me out? Thanks. But seriously, G is awesome. Please check out her Amazon Prime film, Conviction. Also check out her website, giawertz.com, J-I-A-W-E-R-T-Z.com. And as always, you can follow me at Ami Tuckered Out. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. This is Ami Tuckered Out.